Morning, Springville. Um, I was looking at the bucket just now, trying to like tap my phone on the bottom of it, figure out how to e-transfer into a bucket. Uh, but anyway, it didn't work. Um, I'm dealing with like a, a thing um, all up in here. I'm going to try to not bless you uh, with too much of that um, today, but forgive me for coughing or sniffling. As we get back into our series, uh, Stories Jesus Told, uh, this week we uh, are going to be looking at probably in pop culture and within the church, within the Christian faith, one of the most well-known and celebrated parables that Jesus told, and that's the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, in pop culture, you hear a Good Samaritan kind of thrown around as a label of like random acts of kindness, right? Or just kind of being a generous and good person. It's like, oh man, look at you. What a, what a Good Samaritan, right? Just kind of a compliment. Uh, there's lots of charities, kind of charity work, and nonprofits that use Samaritan um, as kind of a part of what they do. The Samaritan's Purse is one of them. We have Samaritan's Food Banks um, all over the place. Uh, and there's even Good Samaritan Laws. If you've ever heard of Good Samaritan Laws, those laws kind of exist to uh, give protection uh, to vulnerable people, uh, specifically kind of in the wake of harm uh, publicly as, as something has happened. So we're very familiar with kind of the Good a Samaritan principle. However, the message that Jesus is going to tell us about the Good Samaritan isn't simply, so go and be a decent person. That's not the purpose of this parable at all. And remember, as we're going through these parables, Jesus is kind of revealing a message and concealing a message at the same time, right? There's this paradox of why he tells parables, this paradox of trying to have an invitation to everyone to enter into the kingdom of God to come after him, to follow after him and live life with him, right? So Luke 10, we're going to see the beginning of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it starts like this. On one occasion, an expert in the law, a Jewish lawyer, stood up to test Jesus. Bad start, right? He said, teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus replies, well, what is written in the law. How do you read it? Jesus is like, all right, let's play. I'll play. Let's, let's have a little Bible study here, right? And he answered, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's one. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But the lawyer wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus and who is my neighbor? Okay, so understand the exchange, the conversation that's happening here. You have this law expert the Jewish, in the Jewish law trying to trap Jesus. This is not kind of a conversation of like, hey, teacher, I've got a question. Can we kind of interact with this? It's not, it's not innocent, right? If you see kind of the line of him trying to justify himself, this is a theology test for Jesus. Bad idea, right? But it's not just that. This is a political test for Jesus, too. There's all sorts of racial, political, theological things wrapped up in what the lawyer's trying to do with Jesus. But if you notice, the question that the lawyer asks is a good question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, usually in, in your Bible, you hear eternal life and you think heaven. But it's more than that. It, it's, it's actually about life to the full. How do I experience life to the full now 
and on trajectory into forever. In other words, how do I enter into the kingdom of God? This is a good question. This is an important question. In fact, all throughout the New Testament, several different people come to Jesus with that exact same question. Nicodemus asks Jesus that question. The young rich ruler asks Jesus that same question. So obviously Jesus kind of has something to his message and the way that he's living that people are going, what is that? How do I get life like that? How do I experience what that teacher is talking about? So it's a good question. And to be honest, wherever we are kind of with religion or thinking about faith and life, all of us ask a version of this question. Because here's the thing. After crushing all your personal goals, after reaching that salary bracket that you wanted to hit, after doing everything that you could accomplish in your career or with your education or having the family that you always envisioned, your head and mine hits the pillow at night and the question hangs, is this it? Is this what life is about? Where does this all end up? That's the question. One of my favorite verses in the Old Testament is Ecclesiastes 3.11. And it said that God actually put eternity in our heart so that we will seek after him. That soul level nag of, is this it? Is not just some kind of human thing that we evolved to ask. It's a divine thing that was put in our heart so that the seeds of that question would flourish out and cause us to examine our lives to say, is this life to the full? And that's the question the lawyer's asking. So it's a good question. The problem is he's asking it with the wrong motives. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Where you're like, I like the question, but I know this is a trap. <laughs> right? You're like, I, I, I think this is a good question, but it's just your posture's wrong. I like what you're saying. I just, I just don't know. I just don't like how you're saying it. Right? That's this. And Jesus doesn't play. Because he's not genuinely asking. If you notice, he's just trying to flex. Right? There's a crowd there. He's just trying to flex. He's like, I'm going to justify myself. I'm going to put this teacher in his place. I know there's a lot of hoopla about this Jesus character, but he's taking attention away from me and my thing. So I'm going to flex in front of the crowd and just show how smart I am. He's wanting some theoretical and theological debate, and Jesus hits him with personal and ethical answers. I love it. Jesus' answer is the same as he answers it elsewhere, the same question. Uh, the same, same time when Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He answers with this. Uh, the Apostle Paul, similarly, in Galatians 5, says that all the law is fulfilled in one word, one phrase, what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So there's all sorts of scripture that bring us back to this same place. And here's what Jesus is doing here. He's bringing together two really important Old Testament teachings, and he's just kind of like slamming them together. And he's then making like one statement to summarize the entire biblical ethic. Like, that's pretty awesome, right? Only Jesus could pull that off. And in fact, Jesus is not just taking two really important teachings in the Old Testament and bringing them together. He's summarizing the entire Ten Commandments in this one breath. The first thing he says is from Deuteronomy 6. And it's called the Shema. And Jews would pray, pray this prayer three times a day. And it was this. The Lord your God... The Lord is one, so love the Lord with all your heart, your soul, your strength, and your mind. That's the first thing. That summarizes the first four of the Ten Commandments. 
And then the last six summarized in Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's the thing. You skip Leviticus. Don't say you don't. You do it. You're like, this is all weird. This is strange. Don't know why I'm reading this. I'm going to skip this, right? Okay, but in Leviticus 19, here's what's crazy. It says, that's where we get love your neighbor as yourself. And all the weird, like, ritual, clean like this, do this, don't do that. Like, this is where, right in the middle, we get love your neighbor as yourself. And guess what it's followed up with? A whole list of practical ways to be intentional about what kind of neighbor we are. So it's not just, like, weird, ritual, ceremonial strangeness. It's actually very practical. Throughout Leviticus, we have examples of what it means to be a neighbor, to truly live as a neighbor. Like, intentionally live with margin so that we can have money to care for the poor and the marginalized. Be people of honesty and integrity in our relationships and in our speech. Mean what you say. Pay your bills on time. Like, that's in there. Care for the disabled and the disadvantaged. Make foreigners and strangers and those that are not from here feel welcome when they come here. Fight every bit of favoritism, whether it's rich over poor or one cultural preference over another and don't hold grudges. That's all in Leviticus. So it's very, very practical. And Jesus is taking the love God and love others and bringing them together and saying the entire ethic of the kingdom of God is wrapped up in those two things. And watch what the lawyer does. He skips entirely trying to get into love of God because he thinks he's nailing that part. And he skips to, yeah, but who's my neighbor? Now, he's not asking. He's not going like, who's my neighbor so I can just run out and love them, right? He's saying, yeah, but hold on. Who's my neighbor? Because there's got to be a category of people that are my non-neighbor. There's got to be a category of people that I don't have to care about, right? There's got to be a group of people that I disagree with that I can say, I'll be nice and love other people except them. That's what he's doing. So the question isn't, oh, Jesus, this is great. How can I go love my neighbor? He's saying, yeah, but who exactly is my, who counts as my neighbor? Who matters enough to be my neighbor? Now, the Pharisees were notorious for this. Non-Jews, Gentiles, and so-called sinners were the ones who were out. They were non-neighbors, right? So what they did is they created an in category and an out category so that they did not feel responsible for caring for the out group. They were able to use their theology and all their biblical knowledge and quote Bible verses to create an us and them. If they're not with us, we're against them. If they don't vote like us, think like us, live like us, agree with us, look like us, live like us, they are out, we are in. How convenient is that? Sociologists call this othering. This is when we create a group of people who are the others so that we can define who we are by who we're not. Are you with me on that? This is the idea of othering. 
As long as I can have a category of people that not only am I not like, I can decide who I am, but more than that, I can actually just have a certain level of disdain or just like, ugh, them, and feel justified by being us. And that's what the lawyer's doing here. The key he skips over is love your neighbor as yourself. This principle is just simply seek the same quality of life for others, regardless of who they are, as you do for yourself. Seek the same quality of life for others, regardless of whether you think they deserve it or not, as you do for yourself. When you're hungry, you eat. When you're thirsty, you drink. When you're tired, you rest. When you're lonely, you visit. When you're in a new space, you want to feel welcomed. So go and do that for everyone everywhere you find yourself. And don't do it just because you are the good Samaritan. Do it because you love God and are so loved that that is just an expression towards others of how, not not how lovable they are, but how loved we are. Amen? That's what the lawyer misses. That's the first challenge in this text, that we wouldn't miss that. And then Jesus does a very Jesus-y thing. Instead of getting into like a theological thing, like Jesus could have slammed this guy, right? Like talk about being able to flex. Like this guy shows up and he's like, yeah, I'm going to do, like Jesus' theology is perfect. He could have been like 11 points, bam, done. The guy would have like just dissolved. (laughs) Thanos, he just like. But he doesn't do that. Watch what he does. Jesus tells a story. Love it. Watch this. Verse 30. Jesus said, so a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. You're like, what? How is this the answer, right? And when he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Pause for a second. This is Jesus' answer to this theological debate. He's telling a story. Already in the crowd, you're like, what is happening? And he tells this story, similar to the parable of the sower that we saw a couple weeks ago. This is such a familiar scene for the crowd that it would have been unremarkable because this is a real thing. It was this, I, this, this path from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was about 30 kilometers apart, so here to Newmarket, right? And there was like this steep drop, about 3,000 feet of elevation between Jerusalem, which was up on the mountain, down to Jericho. And it was dangerous. Like it was, it was a trek. It was rocky. There was huge boulders and caves. Um, in, in the first century, it was known as the, the way of blood. Because it was just like, oh, don't go there. The bloods and the crypts are there, right? It's the way of blood. Because thieves, what would they would do? They would just hide in these little caverns and these caves. And they would just wait for people, jump them, beat them, take their stuff. Right? Grand Theft Auto, except with donkeys. And, and that's what happens here. They beat him up, they rob him, they leave him for dead. No guarantee that anybody would ever come across his body. So Jesus starts this story like this. So in, in modern thinking, think about it like this. Jesus has this theological question happen, and he turns to the crowd and he goes, so it was midnight in Harlem. And you're like, interested, right? Like, like this, so you're in, like the hook is there. So for us, this isn't familiar, but, but, but the, the hook is there. The story is, is going to progress. So you're like, I'm in. I'm very interested. Keep going. Verse 31 32. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, you're like, surely help has arrived. A priest. 
he passed by on the other side. And so too a Levite, which is like the assistant to the regional manager, the priest, right? When he came to the place and saw him, he also passed by on the other side. So right away, emotionally, we're set up for like, surely help has arrived. The hero of the story is here. The priest with the cape, surely knows the law, represents God's people before God. Surely the priest is going to help. After all, the priest knows Leviticus 19, 18, to go and love your neighbor as yourself. The priest knows Micah 6, 8, that the Lord requires us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. The priest knows Proverbs 21, 13, that whoever shuts his ears to the cry of the poor and the down and out, that they, their cry also will not be heard. Surely the priest is going to help. But he sees and he passes by on the other side. And then the assistant to the priest shows up. Surely he is going to help. Okay, the priest did it. Maybe he's got good reasons for not helping. The Levite surely is going to help. And he passes by on the other side. The hero of the story is not the hero. We're set up to be like, no, no, this is already very shocking. Now, here's what's interesting about this story, contextually, that priests and Levites often they don't live in Jerusalem. They live in Jericho. And what they would do is they would actually live in Jericho, make the trek to the temple, and then they would work like two-week shifts and then travel home with their pay. Now, their paycheck wasn't just an e-transfer or some crypto. Their paycheck were donkeys and wine and grain and food and meat, right? And so often thieves would wait there because they're like, this is a paycheck. We're going to get this stuff. We're going to get out of here. So they would wait and they would attack priests and Levites and all sorts of other people making pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship. But they do nothing. So don't miss kind of the emphasis of the story so far. The only thing that the people that should know to do good do is they go out of their way to avoid doing anything. If your beliefs give you reasons to move away from people in need, might I suggest they're the wrong beliefs? If the so-called purity of your theological ideas or religious doctrine cause you to distance yourself from people in need, you need new doctrine. That's the challenge towards the people who should know better in this story. It causes for us to examine our hearts about what we believe, not only about ourselves, but about others, and how much that actually has me move towards people in need or away from them. And trust me, Culture gives us all sorts of reasons, usually fear-mongering, about why we shouldn't associate with this type of person or that type of person or stereotypes about this group of people so that what do we do? We otherize, we make an us versus them, and then we step back and feel justified to do what? Nothing. That's the prophetic call-out of this text for you and I. Now, here's where the story gets really shocking. Verse 33 through 35 but a Samaritan. Woo! This is getting spicy. As he traveled, he came where the man was. He saw. He saw him. He came to him. He took pity on him. 
He went to him. He bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, very expensive. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, which is two days worth of wages, so whatever you make times, for, for a day times two, paid it, and then gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. I will return and reimburse you whatever extra expense you have to take care of this man. Now you have to understand how shocking this story is because there is this very real hierarchy in the ancient world, socially, kind of like morally, religiously, all sorts of categories of who were like despicable and you couldn't get lower than a Samaritan unless you were a leper. Like it was bad. And so you had like priests who were the top, the ones who should know better. And then you had the Levites and then you had lay people. And then somewhere way down here, you had Samaritans. And not to mention there was about 800 years of deep racial, religious, and political tensions between the Jews and the Samaritans. They had been like bombing each other. Well, not bombing, but you know what I mean? Like whatever, stabbing, um, kicking. <laughs> Um, whatever they were doing to terrorize each other, right? So there was 800 years of terrorism and violence for centuries because the Samaritans were half Jewish and half Assyrian. They were seen as just sellouts. When the Assyrians came in and invaded Israel and just demolished them, some of the remnant of, Jeru of the Jews were like, this isn't too bad. So they intermarried and they mixed and so they're a biracial group of Jews, but also more than that, there's a theological and political tension that is very, very deep-seated here. So you've got to think about this story. Most of the Jews that Jesus is talking to in the crowd that day, they saw Samaritans as heretics, as half-breeds, as inferior in almost every single way. And the Samaritans saw Jews as racist, Hateful oppressors with a superiority complex. It's bad. In other places, remember in John 4, when Jesus has the woman at the well, Jesus approaches her to, to gain proximity with her, comes to her. What does she say? Jews don't, don't, Jews don't associate with Samaritans. What are you doing here? She's shocked that he's even making eye contact with her. Other places in John 8, Frustrated Pharisees say to Jesus, you're demon-possessed and a Samaritan. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> like, that's how bad it is. It's like, you might as well just be possessed by demons. That's how devalued the Samaritans were. There were subhuman people in the cultural moment that Jesus is telling this story. And what does Jesus do? He makes the Samaritan the hero of the story. Woo! Told you it's spicy. This is wild. He makes the Samaritan the neighbor to the half-dead Jew on the side of the road. In one sentence, Jesus is calling out racism, religious fundamentalism, and classism all in one breath. Only Jesus could pull that off. Then Jesus asks this question. Verse 36 through 37 which of these three people that passed by do you think, turning to the lawyer, was a neighbor 
to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the lawyer replied, the one who had mercy on him. Can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He is so filled with hate that he can't even say what type of person it was and make them the hero of the story because that person is subhuman to him. And Jesus says, go and do likewise. The question of who proved to be a neighbor is the question that we have to reflect on. Because often we will ask in some way, yeah, but who is my neighbor? And Jesus counters the question of who is my neighbor with what kind of neighbor are you? What kind of neighbor am I? And the lawyer so reluctantly, you can just imagine like his lips barely opening to answer. The one who showed mercy, right? Like this is not like, oh, Jesus, you got me. I'm going to repent. Oh, yeah, I've been a terrible neighbor. Like this is like I just lost this like weird theological arm wrestle that I thought I was going to one-up Jesus on, right? The one who showed mercy. So go and do likewise. So what does this look like? What do we see the Samaritan doing to kind of show us what this do likewise looks like? Well, there's three things that the Samaritan does that the priest and the Levite do not, if you caught it. The first thing, the Samaritan sees something instead of looking the other way. The second thing, there's a word for compassion there. He feels something, whereas the priest and the Levite feel nothing. And third, he did something, whereas the priest and the Levite did nothing. So the Samaritan, who is the villain in the culture, but the hero of the story, saw, felt, and did something. Saw a person, an image bearer of God, felt compassion and moved, not away from that person, but towards that person in need, and then did something by caring for them. That's what it means to go and do likewise, to be a neighbor. Notice the Samaritan doesn't stop when he sees the person and say, I wonder what he did to deserve this. You know what, maybe I'll wait for more of the facts or the footage to come out to see if I justify being a decent human being. I mean, I wonder what terrible life decisions led them here. I don't know the full story. Maybe I'll hold off before I actually care about this person. After all, why would I want to be compassionate or generous if it was his fault? The Samaritan doesn't do any of that. The priest and the Levite do. Today, Springville, we are conditioned all day, every day to live as passive observers of our world. And it doesn't help that we live in such a digital world because we literally sit on browsers that allow us to be arm's length away behind screens and devices and browse. So what do we do? We're conditioned all day to do what? Scroll past needs. How many times have you been online 
where you've seen like footage of a war-torn country and an update on an earthquake where tens of thousands of people have died and the next post is, ha ha ha, kitties. Oh, look at the puppies. Look at that dance. But, but you're, like you're with me, right? How quickly, emotionally, are we just numbed from things that matter and entertained by the trivial so we just walk past? It doesn't help that we're also fed a long list of reasons why self-preservation is more godly than caring for people. <laughs> like, I just, I, don't, I just don't know where we get it from, but it's not Jesus. So we end up really good theology, just buttoned down. It's like my doctrine's sick. Yeah, but you do nothing. Like you do nothing good. How good is your doctrine if you don't do anything good? So we end up detached and unaffected and, and apathetic and we just walk by. And church, listen, this apathy it's not an external thing. It's no one else's fault. We can't blame the internet. We can't blame kind of our peer group. We can't blame, you know, whatever it is, whatever generation who's not doing enough. We can't blame any of that because Ephesians 4.18 tells us that a hardness of heart, a calloused heart, an apathetic heart is the problem. You know where it comes from? Ephesians 4 says that it comes from pleasures of life, decadence, entertainment. We just end up dead to feeling, desensitized to the meaningful and alive to the trivial. So that's the heavy part of this, right? That's the convicting part that we have to sit with. But listen, it's not that you don't care, but it's that we don't feel enough to care. And that's why we know it's a heart issue, that we just don't feel for God. We don't feel compassion for others. We're not broken up about injustice. One billion people on planet Earth with no drinking water every day, you're like, ah, sad. But it doesn't do anything to you. 600,000 children in foster care in North America alone that we, if the church took care of orphans like we're called to, we would end the need for foster care. The human trafficking that's fueling the porn industry while we're consuming pornography. The hundreds of thousands of abortions that happen in Canada every year because young parents don't see another option. Single parents struggling to get by. Immigrants coming to our country feeling unwelcomed and displaced. Church, does it shake you? It starts in our heart. We have to fight the urge to just look away and feel nothing and do nothing. It starts in our hearts because that's where apathy breeds this kind of disinterest in things that matter. And here's why I think apathy is so easy. Because it is. It's just a cop-out. Like, I know it's like, there's like an emotional detachment that's kind of like cool. I'm just like, eh, 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 meh. It's like, that's not cool. That, that's unwhole. Like, like there's, something, there's something really uncool about that, to be honest. If you're moved by nothing other than the desire to be like so like unmoved, that's not cool. 
Apathy is easy because it protects what we want. Apathy is easy because it doesn't stir us. It shackles us to ourself. Are you with me on that? Like apathy shackles us to ourself. The priest and the Levite, perfect doctrine, shackled to themselves. Self-interest and self-preservation were the priority of their life. So they see nothing, feel nothing, do nothing. Pastor John Piper said this, and it rocked me when I heard it the first time, and it rocks me every time. Listen, apathy is passionless living. It is sitting in front of the TV night after night, living your life from one moment of entertainment to the next. It is the inability to be shocked into action by the lostness and suffering of the world. It is the emptiness that comes from thinking of godliness, hear this, as the avoidance of doing bad things instead of the aggressive pursuit of doing good things. Amen? Like sometimes you got to say amen when it doesn't feel good. You with me on that? Right? Like this is an amen, baby. So many of us, like the lawyer, have honestly bought the lie that Christianity is about avoiding bad things. So then we create like all these categories of moral and ethical kind of like legalism and purism and we stay over here. But what if we actually saw what Jesus is saying, that the kingdom of God and kingdom people, Springville, are those who have a relentless pursuit of good, a relentless pursuit of good for our neighbors, whoever they are. And that that points to the good God. And that's an overflow of the God who sees and feels and acts. Amen? That's this. That, that the kingdom people have been so welcomed despite their brokenness into the arms of a loving God that we cannot help ourselves but go and live radically generous lives, hospitable lives to the stranger as a reflection of the God who sees you feels for you and acts on your behalf to save you. That's this. So don't miss it. This parable has far less to do with being a good person and being a good Samaritan and everything to do with how comfortable we are doing nothing good at all. That's this. We can make a difference or we can make excuses but you cannot do both. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. So that's the heavy bad news. You want some good news? Here's the good news. Yes, please. Even used your manners. What a good Samaritan. <laughs> Springville, here's the good news. God will not let his people not care. <laughs> he won't. He can't help himself. Because he's the God who sees the God who feels and the God who acts, he won't let us not care. So that's good news, right? Like, we don't know how to, like, you can't manufacture change in your own heart. I don't know if you knew that. I don't know if you've tried. Like, that's as, as, as effective as, like, laying in bed, not being able to fall asleep, and just being like, fall asleep! <laughs> right? Like, like, I don't know if that's working for you. It's not working for me. Didn't last night while I was breathing like Darth Vader. <laughs> right? But you can't change your own heart. But here's the good news. God wants to. God's willing. God will never say, oh, okay, you don't care, neither do I. That's, that's just not our God. 
That's not the God that is revealed in the good news of Jesus Christ. That is not the God made flesh, Jesus, who has come to us because he saw and felt to save us, right? This is nothing short of the gospel here in this parable. That Jesus is the God who sees, feels, acts, and has full of mercy and enters in. It literally is who he is in flesh. That's good news. So what do we do with this? I don't know what this looks like for you, but notice what Jesus did about neighbor. Jesus expands our understanding of neighbor and shrinks it at the same time. Did you catch that? Like, Like he expands it, yes, to everyone, but then he shrinks it to someone. Right? So, so here's the problem. If we see like this and we're like, oh, yeah, I'm motivated. My heart's changing. This is awesome. I'm going to go out and I'm going to love my neighbor. I'm just going to love everybody. Everybody quickly becomes nobody. You with me on that? Yeah, like you can generalize neighbor so much that you actually end up not doing anything practical for anybody. That's not what Jesus is getting at. The Greek word for neighbor, watch this, is going to blow your mind. You ready? Someone who is near. Whoa. Now you can go like flex at cocktail parties. Be like, I know the Greek word for neighbor. It means someone who is near. They'll be like, cool. But here's what neighbor means. Anyone next to you, where you live, and how you live. That's it. Wherever you find yourself and however you find yourself. That means whatever campus you're on, whatever school you're a part of, whatever job and workplace you're a part of. That's how you live. That's where you find yourself, but then also where you live. Meaning, our literal neighbors. You guys with me on that? Like, I know we do this. We're just kind of like, no, like, I'm on mission for people, like, at my workplace. And you're like, yeah, but your neighbors are literally, like, it's in the name, neighbor. (laughs) Right? So so we can't bypass kind of our literal neighbors where we find ourselves, but also our neighbors are those kind of where we are in every other place and how we live regardless of race, regardless of religion, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of past decisions or current lifestyle choices, if there are neighbors, then we're called to love people next to us wherever we are and whoever they are. In a book uh, by a guy called Thaddeus Williams, which is an unreal name, His book, Confronting Injustice, says this, watch. Christians should be known less as culture warriors. Sit with that one. And more as good Samaritans who stop for battered neighbors, whether they are black, white, brown, male, female, gay, straight, rich, poor, old, young, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, atheist, capitalist, socialist, Republican, Democrat, near, far. What kind of neighbor am I? The first time Jesus announces the gospel, first time he actually preaches it and vocalizes what he's about to embody and accomplish for us, he says that he's anointed to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom to prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind and to set the oppressed free. For many of us, we have such a truncated gospel that we just think that Jesus came to proclaim theology so we can know some stuff and be really smart and go to heaven one day. 
But Jesus says he actually came to change people so radically that they actually bring heaven to earth. There's, that's, that's different. That's a different gospel. Amen? And, and, and church, listen, it's everywhere. Like the, the God who sees, feels, and acts, like it's everywhere. Titus 3.14, let our people learn to devote themselves to really good theology. Nope. Themselves to good works, so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. 1 Timothy 5.10, have a reputation for good works. Hebrews 10.24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Friends, one day, if we are followers of Jesus, or we are not, we will stand before Jesus and we will give an account for what we did with the life that he gave us. And some of us will hear this, well done, good and faithful servant. A reward for our doing. Not our thoughts and prayers. Not whether we changed our profile picture for that newest cause that frankly we don't care about. But well done, good and faithful servant. Our response to God's rich mercy towards us. We're going to respond for that. We're going to answer for that. So I'm done. But Springville, imagine with me. Let's dream for a minute and then I'll pray. Imagine with me. York Region or wherever you are, saturated with followers of Jesus who see needs, who see, who feel compassion, and who act to love everyone wherever we find ourselves. And listen, are we going to fall short on this? Of course we are. Are we going to drop the ball? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is our heart going to drift back into apathy and not feeling? Are we just going to keep scrolling? Of course. But it will all be done in obedience as we move forward towards the God who sees, feels, and acts as we reflect his goodness to everyone wherever we find ourselves, whoever they are. Amen? Let me pray for us. Father, we're so thankful for those of us that do know you and love you and follow you that we've experienced the richness of your mercy that we are the half dead on the side of the road and that you seek us out. You bandage us up. You provide for our needs, for our healing and our restoration. And for those of us who don't know you, I pray right now, Spirit, that you would move in hearts, that our hearts would be moved from apathy to compassion, that you would just blow up our definition of neighbor And if we don't know you, that you would show us today that you are the God who comes after us on the side of the road and you require nothing from us other than surrender. I pray that you would do that in each of our hearts now, and especially as we go into communion and we just bring our gaze, our eyes up to your broken body and your shed blood that you would break through into our hearts and we would just see afresh the greatness of your mercy because you see, you feel, and you act. And we ask all these things in the only name that matters. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.